Hey, this is Ethan Phillips from Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Treks in Sci-Fi. Well, thanks, Ethan, for that great intro uh, that I recorded at the Comic-Con a couple weeks ago. Yes, this is Treks in Sci-Fi, show number 125 for June the 10th, 2007. Got a cool show, a duo commentary this week with Sebastian Pruth, who I talked to uh, a couple months back. Uh, Going to go over a Star Trek Next Generation episode together. That will be the main uh, topic, main focus for this week's podcast. Got a few other things to talk about, uh, so stand by. Here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Treks in Sci-Fi podcast. Scotty, beat me up. Fascinating. Stand by to receive our transmission. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, new and older listeners, or older, uh, that is, listening to the podcast. This is Rico, and this is Treks in Sci-Fi. Not going to talk too much uh, today, uh, but I want to uh, just mention a few things. Uh, one is the contest that I announced last week, uh, Star Wars contest to win the the hardcover uh, edition of The Art of the Phantom Menace, which, which is really a really cool uh, book, a lot of cool artwork uh, preliminary art and uh, concept art for the first of the prequel Star Wars movies. Uh, what I'm looking for is audio from listeners talking uh, and sort of reenacting a little scene or character from the Star Wars films. Keep them about a minute, uh, maybe even a little longer than that, maybe up to two minutes, but probably a minute or under would be good. And send those into the treksf at gmail.com email address and we will uh, announce the winner and play those uh, next week i'm not going to talk too long here because we've got a, a long uh, full episode commentary to go with uh, or go through with sebastian uh here in a second but uh, i just want to thank everyone always for downloading and listening to the podcast uh, i'll have a little uh commentary that i'm going to slip in at the very end of our commentary sebastian of mine's at the end of this podcast but not much there uh, just again, it's always uh, a pleasure to do these for you, everyone, and listen to uh, to what Sebastian and I have to say. Yes, we are going to be covering the Star Trek Next Generation episode, Power Play, which will be what we'll be going through together. Uh, we'll be uh, commenting on the episode and playing it kind of softly in the background. Uh, you may want to have the episode running, though, when you listen to our commentary on this. So without any further ado, uh, here we go into um, Sebastian and uh, myself over Skype talking about uh, this Star Trek Next Generation episode. So stand by. Okay, everyone, I'm here with Sebastian Pruth, who you remember from a podcast a couple of months back. Sebastian, how are you? I am doing great, Rico. What about yourself? Doing well, doing well. Uh, nice uh, enjoying the weekend and uh, the break from work, and, and the weather here is great. How's the, how's the weather? You're in, you're in England still, correct? That's right. The weather here is really quite warm. It's about 80 degrees in this room inside the house. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so... Uh, no AC for you, or just you just don't turn it on until it gets really bad? 
there's pretty much no air conditioning in these houses because of the way they're built. They're stone, so there's no you know piping in the walls for the air conditioning. Ah, okay, Big I see. Ducts and stuff. Yeah, I know when I went to I visited London several years ago, and uh, they they get fairly warm during the summer at times, and and actually it was uh, a little bit of humidity too, even. Oh, very humid here. The dog is actually outside. He doesn't want to be inside. He pants too much. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> tell uh, tell everyone in the uh, Treks and Sci-Fi audience uh, what you've been up to and what's been going on with you for the last couple of months. Well, um, aside from being you know fairly active in the Treks and Sci-Fi forum, which is a great place, and I'm you know trying to make some friends over there. Uh, in the last couple of months, I've become a published author. Uh, now with two books that you can buy but the freelance writing that I've been doing still working on the screenwriting and most recently have uh, posted up a complete chapter of the book I was talking about the last time I was on your show Rico the Michael Pillar Star Trek Insurrection book correct now uh, you want to tell everyone a little bit more about that where they can find sure, uh, more information sure. and so on um, the chapter uh, which is uh, called What's It About? And for those of you who know about Michael Piller will know that was one of his um, sort of catchphrases. If somebody came up to him with a screenplay and said this will make a great episode of Star Trek TNG, his first question is, what's it about? And this chapter from his unpublished and unreleased book from Star Trek Insurrection uh, basically says why he used that phrase, what's it about, where it came from in his life, and it also explains a little bit of his um, writing ethic. Certainly a, a great little ride for people who, um, you know, just to charge people up so they're very interested in seeing this book when we finally are able to publish it. Good, good. So you, uh, you've put that up online somewhere. Where would that be at? And I will also, of course, link all this up in uh, the notes for this week. Okay, um, it's available on my website, which is www.sebrt.com, and it's actually the last post right now, so it should pop up as soon as you're there. Oh, okay. All right, so it's, it's just on your, your website itself. Yeah. Okay, well, good, good. So, uh, And then the, the you mentioned the book itself. Now, how is that available? Is that out available right now or uh, uh, online? The book is completely um, unavailable, in fact. It is not something that can be downloaded in any form. Because the um, it's just uh, unreleased. Um, we're working on getting that published, but this is just a chapter from it. So to see if we can get some public interest behind oh, it, maybe okay. possibly a petition or something like that. Okay, I see. All right. So you still have. So that's not officially out yet. Okay. No, it's not official, which is why it's so exciting because it's so uh, so much of Michael Pillar, uh, which is you know hidden to the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I had thought last time we talked about that that you were that the plan was to have that just released sort of on on the on the net. Uh, are, are you looking to get it published more in book form then now, or or what's the deal on that? Well, what we're looking to do is uh, get it published by hook or by crook, but do it completely legally, obviously. So sure, what we want to do is secure the rights to it or get Paramount to release it. So I'm working on a strategy to release it, whether that be by getting Star Trek fans to petition on a website to get Paramount to release it or something like that. Uh-huh. Okay. I understand. And you mentioned um, another uh, another piece of uh, a work or book that you've been working on, too. Was there another one, I think, that you said? Uh, yes. Just um, a couple of weeks ago, 
uh, the book that I'm uh, one-third of the author credit on called Criminal Masterminds was released in the UK and a few dozen other countries, as well as another one, which is um, aptly named Fiendish Killers, which is about serial killers, you know, uh, freelance work here in the UK. And that, uh, do you have uh, information on your website about that as well? Uh, yes, the on my website on the about page is a photo of me holding the book, and I when you click on the picture, it should take you to somewhere you can actually buy it. Good, good. Well, um, I know you. Uh, we talked a little briefly before we got started here about um, you know some of the things that have been going on with you. Was there anything else that you'd like to mention? Our uh, you know our main topic is going to be going through this uh, Star Trek Next Generation episode, but I know you wanted to mention a few things before we got started. Well, one of those was the actual Michael Pillar chapter release, and the other was uh, yesterday we finally got in a position where we're fully launching uh, both a business partner and myself a uh, short, downloadable, pay-for PDF about blogging and writing online. And that's also linked to from my website at the moment. So if you're looking to improve your writing, whether it be you know a blog or whatever you're doing, newspaper style stuff uh you can uh pick up our pdf for it's it's it's, it's uh just two dollars 99 and it's like 25 pages so it's a pretty good deal at the moment good good so what what kind of got you interested in doing that or how did that come about uh well uh, a friend of mine uh who i actually taught somewhat the ins and outs of blogging about a year ago approached me and said well how would you like to uh, do some editing of this book and help me just fine tune it and get it released um, as a, uh, a downloadable pay for PDF and uh, you know I jumped to that because he offered me a reasonable um, cut in the profits so <laughs> as, yeah. as you do yeah yeah well that's interesting that's uh, you know there's a uh, you know everybody and their grandma out there has some kind of a you know a a blog and a lot of things like that these days, and uh, you know the people. Uh, seventy million bloggers registered with Technorati, apparently. <laughs> How many? Seven, seventy or seventeen? S- seventy million as 70. of last month. I- I'm always curious when I hear numbers like that if they ever figure out or if there's a way for them to determine how many of those are really, you know, maybe say more than once every, you know, year updated. You know, you <laughs> yes, know what I mean. Uh, I mean, there, or there's spam in, in in any way. You know, where they sometimes people put spam blogs up. Sure, and, and, you know, and there's a lot of people. And, you know, you get really into something, even like blogging or podcasting or, or whatever it might be, a website creation and so on. And then you know, a few months go by and you start to get a little, you know, distracted or whatever happens. You know, pod your, fade. Yeah, and you're in your in your <laughs> uh, yeah. We have all these new terms or blog fade, pod fade, and and. And then, you know, a short period of time later, and you, you maybe do some kind of Google search and you go to somebody's uh, page on the web and you see that oh, updated last in 2003, you know, or whatever, something like that. And Or even if it's there at all, I find lots of websites that are just like, like nothing. It's a placeholder. So, But I can mm-hmm. understand that. It, it takes a uh, – from somebody that's been doing uh, – well, this podcast for quite a while, it, it – uh, you know, there's there's – it it does take a certain amount of discipline to keep it up, and it's it's not um, you know without some of the people on the forums and like you mentioned earlier the community and, and getting some kind of response out there it's kind of a little bit you feel like you're a little bit in a vacuum after a while but I, I've uh, I've really enjoyed what I've been doing so uh, so I keep with it but uh, 
Yeah, a lot of bloggers out there, and, and they could certainly use some brushing up, I'm sure, on their on their writing. You know, there's a lot of people, I don't know, I run into people on forums and, and blogs that seem to have this idea that, well, it's just on the Internet, and it doesn't matter. This is the way I write, or this is the way I spell, and and it's, mm-hmm. you know, they, they seem to have that kind of an idea, and I, I some of it sometimes becomes almost unreadable. I don't know what you think about that, but... Uh, well, one... one- one of the things that I often say about blogging is that unless you have something that you really have worked at and, and have written properly, you know, nobody really cares. You're not going to find a newspaper that's written in pigeon spelling. Sure, you know? it's, yeah. It, it, really, release your best work or don't release it. Right. And I suppose uh, as a caveat to that, I should probably give the website for our book. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'll, and I'll is, you know, um, get all this on the notes for this week, too. Which is guide to advancedblogging.com. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Well, that's a, a a cool idea. I think it's very unique. I, I've not heard about that a lot. I know there's always somebody out there who seems to be willing to, uh, you know, give you some advice or say, "Hey, can't you spell or use a dictionary and so on <laughs> and, and that kind of thing." But there's a lot more to it. So that's a that's a very cool thing. I, I think that's a, a unique idea that's definitely overdue and. I think uh, if a lot of people took advantage of it, maybe they'd get a little more, uh, get a few more visitors at their site. So, well, I want to get going onto this uh, to this episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation, and just to uh, to let everyone know again, we are uh, we're going to go through uh, the episode Power Play, which is from the fifth season of Star Trek: The Next Generation. It was something that uh, both Sebastian and I kind of came uh, to a conclusion on of. Of one of the episodes we wanted to cover together, uh, Sebastian has some uh, some background and inf- information on this episode in particular, right? Is that correct? Well, well um, there's more to talk about, say, in this episode than there was in the other one we were discussing, which was Deja Q. Okay, all right, right. Which yeah, we was, had a few uh, that we were yeah. tossing around if we wanted to cover. So, um, well, we'll save most of that discussion for during the episode. the uh, The plan here is, well, I'm going to take a little pause, at least in the podcast. Uh, time here and and play a little uh, brief uh, pause music if you could say it and that way and then what we'll do is we'll be right back with the with the episode itself and, and get into uh, Sebastian and myself uh, commenting on it so stand by everyone we'll be right back hey everyone this is Scott Johnson from the extra life radio show you're listening to treks in sci-fi with my friend Rico Okay, we're uh, about to get started on the Star Trek Next Generation episode commentary for the show Power Play. Sebastian, uh, when I say now, we will both engage our our DVDs. So, ready? Now. Yep. So, do you want me to go ahead and give a background on this episode first, or...? Well, yeah, the, um, what I want to just tell the people listening, the basic way where Sebastian and I are going to run through this is the episode, you'll hear the audio playing in the background kind of quietly, but you may need a copy of the show to really um, play yourself. So uh, go ahead, Sebastian, though, yes. Uh, this episode is the 15th episode of Season 5 of Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, being a sort of hostage on the ship episode a very typical uh situation kind of a john q in star trek the next generation 
And our first scene here opens up similarly to the um, episode Relics, uh, which was a sixth season episode, so a year later when they find Scotty. There's almost like the same dialogue. We hear the distress call, let's go find out. Yeah, yeah, they use that kind of technique a lot, I think. And I, I just want Riker here to say something, you know, or Data to say, get, get your foot off my chair here. Where, where's his foot there, anyway? <laughs> Where is it? Yeah, on the council? Is they always on... put their feet up there, don't they? Yeah, it's like, get your foot off my chair, Riker. <laughs> uh, the episode, um... And that Troy look, the, the I sense something, Captain. Really? Yeah. You sense something? <laughs> Isn't that a new one? <laughs> but are you right this time? <laughs> it's always amazing they have these these massive uh, sensors and scientific instruments and stuff, but they all seem to not be able to handle you know finding the life forms. But but good old Troy can find them. So go ahead, go ahead, Sebastian. Though we're into the well, just what's really um, uh, shocking about now. Star Trek is um, they always they they never seem to do what you're screaming at the television for them to do you know set your phaser higher or you know throw a chair at them or something it's, it, right or it, you get the bad guy down on the ground and, and he's been knocked out it's like tie him and up then you help him something. up again yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you help him up don't go over and check on him you know kick the weapon out of the way and yeah no, that it, never happens on star trek well, you know i don't know that's kind of a tv i i kind of always notice that if everybody did things that are sometimes seem a little obvious or or, you know, like you said, screaming at the TV to do this or that, whether it's Star Trek or some other show, you'd never really end up having, you know, they, the drama would be over. I mean, they, they would just well, solve, yeah. solve the whole problem. You'd say, hey, I can already tell you that this is going to be a problem. You better take care of that guy or do something. <laughs> well, let me just give a little background information sure. on this title sequence as we're watching it. The Enterprise is flying around... Um, and that is a, the uh, model of the Enterprise shot at a studio in Los Angeles called Image G. And they shot all of the model work for the Enterprise D, the first stuff that was used. All this was stock footage that they took. And in fact, the Enterprise is upside down, sitting stationary on a table with a camera on motion control moving around rather than actually being pushed around a studio. And uh, there we go. Yeah, this uh, this is back in the good old days of using models instead of everything being uh, generated on a computer. I, I still kind of have a fondness for that kind of look better than than computer First graphics, even though they've they've come such a long way. Oh, absolutely! Uh, something that should be noted that little um, scene we saw of the Enterprise in orbit there, we'll see again in a few minutes is actually used again in the Rascals, an episode where the Klingon ships with Ferengis on board take over the Enterprise. Ah, yeah, So I that's also that. stock footage. Used a lot when they used to have to uh, do model shots. They used to use a lot of stock footage. Now, is it my imagination, Sebastian, or, or is this shuttle a little different than their normal shuttles here? The set seems a little different. Well, the shuttle is uh, very similar to the other shuttles that you've seen um, on uh, the second season, say, uh, Time, Time Squared, where Picard was found in a shuttle from the future. Okay. Uh, it's called a shuttle pod, this one. But there's an actual bench for Troy to sit on, and also note the presence of seatbelts. Yes, I'm noticing yeah, a few subtle differences like that. And uh, as the shuttle crashes on the planet, we find ourselves on stage 16 of Paramount Pictures' Planet Hell. 
where all manner of horrible environments be, can be created. Yes, the, the the dreaded planet hell set. Uh, this um, I always loved when they crash though how they spin the whole the whole camera. You know, basically every time something crashes in a show, it's like the mm. thing is at the very last minute spinning like 360 degrees. You know, three or four times just to show, you, yeah. hey, look, we're crashing. Yeah, we're crashing, and no one's going to die from this horrific accident. Exactly, we're spinning around, but but no, it's okay. We're just going to walk away. It's going to be fine. So. But if you look, when as they got out of the shuttle just now, you can actually see a little fire they had in there to make it look really, um, really bad inside there as they're climbing out. Very orange light. Right, right. Like there's something. Yeah, it's like it's burning up. Yeah, and they're walking around in Planet L. Should be noted, this looks like the same. Um, it's also the same time period when the Borg and Hugh were in the episode, and they uh, had they found the dead Borg on the planet. And, uh, you know, Geordi was down there with the Borg as they walked around and picked up different parts. It looks exactly the same as this. Right, right. They, you know, they you had the same thing in, like, the original Star Trek series where the planets started to look the same. They painted the rocks a little different color, maybe, and that was about it. Well, there was a gag on it in Star Trek Voyager where they said, doesn't this look a lot like the last planet we were at when they were on the Captain Proton scenario? Right. And right. Yeah, well, sets were expensive, so, you know, they just had to repaint them. That's what they said on the show, so it's kind of like breaking the fourth wall there. Yeah, it's... um. It's a common situation. I mean, occasionally they could get out and do a location shot, uh, but even the location shots sometimes, you know, would be in the same same area, same location. You know, Vasquez Rocks and all that in California. One thing I'd like to mention about this particular scene is O'Brien's about to talk to Picard about beaming down to the planet, and uh, watch how uninterested Picard is in O'Brien's life. Right here. Just all right then. Good luck. It's almost like all right then. I don't give a crap about you. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly. Um. Well, uh, O'Brien's playing uh, sort of a red shirt these days, isn't he? In these episodes. Yeah. Little did he know at this point that he'd end up being a regular on uh, on another Star Trek series in the future. And, you know, uh, Colm, Colm, uh, why am I blanking out? I want to call him, Colm, it's Colmini, not, I was about Colmini, to say Colm yeah. O'Brien. I was about to call him that, but, <laughs> you know, he's gone on to do some pretty good stuff uh, since Star Trek, actually. I saw him in that movie, The Layer Cake. Uh, I thought he was really good in that. I haven't seen him in any films, but I noted around the same time he was on Star Trek, any time they needed an Irish actor on American television, he would be in it. Yes, uh, yes, no, exactly. No matter what it was, if it was Irish, you would find Colmini in it. <laughs> Should be noted that the uh, stunt that we just saw, where they all threw themselves backwards onto the um, onto the set floor, was actually the actors doing it themselves. And uh, when um, Marina Sirtis did that, she she broke her tailbone, and uh, this, the shooting had to be delayed a series of weeks because it's a Troy episode. Yeah, I think you're, uh, we mentioned earlier when, when Sebastian and I were talking about the frame rate differences. He's in England and, and I'm in the U.S. playing our DVDs. So the his show right now, what you're seeing, I think, Sebastian, you're just a few seconds ahead of me right now. Maybe about Let me just back seconds. up a little here. 
So are you beaming up now with the transport enhancers there? Right now, they're zooming in on Troy in, in sick bay. Okay, I'm with you. And now they're zooming in on her eye, which is probably about to open. Yes, it just opened. Yep. She just screamed, we're we're so. exactly in time. Okay. Uh, dialogue error right here of Dr. Crusher. She says, you're experiencing the after images of the lightning strike. She should have been saying the after effects. I don't know why you'd have an after image. Yeah, I don't know that, that terminology. I'm not sure. Injury report, Doctor. Mostly minor abrasions. Commander Riker took the worst of it with a broken arm. Better? Good work, Chief. Thank you, sir. So Picard seems to be more interested in duty, Chief O'Brien now. He saved all his friends. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's nice, you know, they, they, you know, Riker, they say, breaks his arm, but he's he's really doesn't, you know, in the future, of course, they can mend a broken arm, like, almost instantly, so. Well, yeah, they have uh, bone uh, re-something units or something. Right, yeah. right, fusers or re-knitters or whatever, you know. And Data's about to have some sort of mechanical error in his voice, which I always find quite amusing. Did Data just use a word that doesn't exist? Is the word interpolate a word, or is it extrapolate? No, interpolate's a word. That, that, is that's it? A, yeah, it's, it's more of a, a math term, really, typically. But, you know, and to interpolate something would be like you, you take two pieces of information or two numbers and you try to, you know, come up with what the middle ground or the other, you know, the average would be in a way. That's kind of a... A loose explanation, but that that is yeah, it's a it's a mathematical term mostly. All right, well that shows why I'm a film producer. <laughs> I don't know anything about math. <laughs> uh, this scene's really um, uh, there. He goes with his foot on the chair. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, yeah, yeah. but I, I just right. I just find that uh, I just find that. If you funny. look behind the aft station, there you see Chief O'Brien sort of listening because he's positioned himself to get uh, Worf in a few seconds, as everybody knows. Ah, uh, yeah, and, yeah, I see him looking around a little. And Troy's in here trying to convince uh, Patrick that they need to do something, and he's being as dumb as usual when he's with her. And Data just had a little bit of a weird expression on his face there, too. Yeah, I don't like Brent's acting in this episode in the slightest. He's one of the finest actors on television I've ever seen, and I think... He's acting in this episode partly to probably to the director, but the director was very experienced, being David Livingston, right? Um, who actually ended up doing um, uh, several episodes of Next Generation. Oh, he did many, many, and he's uh, you know he's his namesake is the fish in Picard's uh, Ready Room. Right, Livingston, the uh, tiger fish. Yeah, and uh, right there, the stunt of Riker getting thrown back—that was a—that was not Jonathan Frakes. And this is not Michael Dorn, but the rest of the stunts are apparently them. Security to the bridge. Which I wouldn't certainly wouldn't want to do that myself. Yeah, now now how come Roe has a phaser? You know? Just, just, well they can you know. produce phasers from just about anywhere. Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah. Uh, they, they can just sort of make them appear in their hands. Worf can have one in his hands in moments from the tactical station. I'm just having a little hard time swallowing that Troy, with even putting her hands together, could knock Picard out in, in, in one blow. I, I mean, and, and even taking Worf down like uh, like O'Brien did, 
you know, again, this is one of those times where you have to sort of like swallow it to some degree or else you wouldn't have an episode. Well, the way Worf is thrown over the console, that should have been that should have been data. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz data could certainly throw a Worf across clear across the bridge. Sure, sure. And uh, this this sequence is reminiscent of when Picard and the kids got stuck in the turbo lift. Yeah, they, right, they, right. Uh, they can override the bridge command from a tiny, tiny console on the turbo lift. Yeah, it's it's interesting how they're able to usually do those kind of things. You know, any little piece of electronics anywhere on the ship, you can pretty much fly the Enterprise. That's uh, yeah, again, again, something that you have to have a. A way to get the episode accomplished, or else, you know, everything Well, would it be should solved. be noted here that one of the stunt ladies, the lady here in the red hair, is a, a stunt actress a lot on Star Trek. Yeah, a she stunt looks familiar, yeah. She's a stunt coordinator. She was um, quite, quite, quite popular on Star Trek, and um, continues to be so, and so works with... Um, interesting camera work here, I'm noticing. Yeah, it's, it's it's a different kind of episode. It's shot very like an action sequence where they have a lot of moving camera dolly work and right. um, above above the head work later on as well. And uh, Data's going to smash a hole in the Enterprise and somehow... Yeah. Somehow... <laughs> yeah, he just sticks his hand in the console there and boom, they got the force field down, you know. Out of the way, he doesn't shoot it with his phaser. You know, that would be really cool. Now you see, one of the things I was watching this episode earlier just to get prepared for this, and um, I kind of realized, oh, here's the baby crying and the whole mom thing. It's really the hostage situation. Everything is set up just perfectly yeah, for a yeah. hostage Yeah, Keiko situation. is there with the, with the baby, of course, and Miles is, is, is one of the possessed ones, which, which sets you up a, a good conflict there. Well, when somebody walks into a room with a gun and says, everyone get on the floor, what do you do? Do you get on the floor or do you stand up and ask them why? <laughs> Yeah, that's hard to say, you know. And that was something uh, there, kind of interesting. Here they are. They're doing all their stunts now. This is she, there's the stunt lady doing her stunts, and um, you know, have we ever, way, no, I was going to comment something about the, um, the the blast to data, and I'm mm -hmm. assuming their phasers are on stun. But have we ever really have they ever really determined fully like what it would take for a phaser to knock data down or not? I'm trying to recall. Yeah, they were saying that um, the computer is able to provide Captain Picard with the precise stun setting that would disable Data in Brothers uh, when Data took over the Enterprise. So it would be something different than just a normal stun that would make it take a regular person down. You'd have to be a little bit higher. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to prove my Star Trek geekiness here. Setting one knocks you out for a couple of seconds, two, five minutes, three, ten minutes. So you might try setting three and work from there. Sure, but you would think that that security person would have known that, you know. A little bit. Well, you see, the phasers aren't working on any of them because they're these. Uh, because these, of the uh, way they're possessed or whatever, right? Yeah, exactly. which is ridiculous, to be honest. I don't know how the phasers are somehow not burning holes in their clothes. Right. The, uh, yeah. Somehow this. Yeah. They, these these beings, these aliens that have possessed them, these ghosts or whatever, are uh, also giving them sort of enhanced physical abilities. Yeah, because um, we don't know what those aliens are like when they are alive and normal. They were separated from their bodies and left to drift in the storms, quote, quote. So we don't know what kind of, what kind of beings those are at all. They could be 
you know, really smart, strong super beings. I wanted to note a few minutes ago when Worf busted into the 10 forward, he looked around like he didn't know what he was doing, and then took a shot at Troy. They didn't go in in any way covering each other's backs or anything. It was completely non-police, which he is the policeman on the Enterprise. Right, they just sort of charged in kind of blindly and... Uh, kind of uh, okay corral kind of charge. Yeah, yeah. When I, whenever I see that, and that's happened a few times, I always... My, my yeah... My logical kind of like, you know, again, one of these things telling the TV what to do, saying that's stupid, why are they doing that? But then uh, I typically try to come up with like a an explanation for the show, for this show particularly. And I always say something like, especially with Worf, well, he's a Klingon. He has this sort of big ego. He thinks he can go in and handle anything. That, that's at least what I always throw out there when I well, see stuff. Well, he's got his Starfleet training in there as well, which will uh, – I mean, I don't know what Starfleet tactical t- teaches because they don't actually exist. Sure. But I'm sure if they did, they would probably teach um, tactics. A little better than just charge into the room. I mean, gosh, my uh, my kids play more than I, but if you've ever played any kind of an online – or not even online, but any kind of computer game, which is some kind of a shooter-type game – and, mm-hmm. and you're running around, you know, you know, like the Halo games or anything. You don't just run into a room. You know, you look for cover. You look around. So you roll in. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you kind of roll in and you, you know, shoot at people. You know, yeah. Especially when you know somebody's in there, basically got a gun, gunning for you. Right now, just to Certainly. let you know, I'm at the point in the episode where Data's sort of egging Worf on. They're having same this here. Time. Seventeen minutes thirty seconds for me. Okay. Uh, Worf is. Uh, Really showing remarkable restraint, as he's about to say later in the episode. Yes. Well, the thing is, if Data took on Worf, as we saw in Data Lore, um, Worf would totally just be beaten to death. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he's... uh, The only thing that possibly there that would help him out to some degree would be if, if he had knowledge of Data and how to take him down in terms of, you know, certain weaknesses he might have or whatever, but in terms of just sheer physical strength, you know, that's... Uh, well, Data's smarter, faster, he's everything. I mean, Data can do anything on Star Trek when they need him to, and right. certainly can't do anything when they don't need him to. For example, there was that episode where there was that guy loose on the Enterprise running around blowing up phasers and closets everywhere. And... Um, they could have sent Data after him, and uh, but they actually sent Worf, and he beat the crap out of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know they you know they went through that with the measure of a man and a lot of that kind of stuff where they talked about you know maybe a ship a starship would be better off just crewed by a whole bunch of Datas rather than all these individuals and uh, you know it's it's an interesting perspective on things but I, I I've always thought that that you there there are things that you learn and different experiences that can't just sort of be programmed in and I think that's a lot of what Star Trek Next Generation was about in regards to the character of Data. You know, and One thing that should be noted in this scene we're on the bridge here, Geordi's yeah. at uh, operations, which has not happened since the first season. And, yeah, he's uh, an engineer, but you know well, he, you know, when there are things that happen like this situation uh, he'll pop up on the bridge occasionally right? I mean when they're... Well yeah, he usually goes to the F station with the engineering station on the far uh, right there, but um, one of the uh, things that I kind of find amusing is the Enterprise D supposedly has a thousand and fourteen people on it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yet only the people who are 
build at the beginning can actually do anything worth it. Sure, well, of course. The people in the main credits are the ones that you, uh, yeah. It's, uh, that's another one of those, one of those, uh, situations where you just sort of have to swallow it, I think. Although Ensign Rowe has a pretty big part in this episode. She, um... Yeah, I always liked her character. I always thought Michelle Forbes, uh, the Ensign Rowe character, I, I, w- I was... I had wished that they had brought um, her character into the show even sooner than they finally did. I, I thought they that was an interesting um, character and, and, you know, the whole Bajoran thing. Well, they, you know, they kind of spun it off into Deep Space Nine to, to a degree. Well, they actually had plans when they first started Deep Space Nine to cast Michelle Forbes right. to play she was gonna be Kira. on that she was, station. Right, she was going to be the kind of Kira character. She was going to be the... Uh, the Bajoran uh, military kind of person on, on Deep Space Nine. And I think she basically turned it down, if I remember correctly, right? It was either she turned it down or she didn't want to be uh, um, tied to the seven years that's pretty much guaranteed on a Star Trek series. It's, you know, the seven years, seven days a week kind of thing almost when they're shooting that. Right. Right. I was reading something before we started this in in, in, a, in my uh, compendium about um, how one of the tricky things here for for the Brent Spiner and you were talking about his acting was him trying to come up with a little different take on this type of character versus the way he would play lore. You know, that it's interesting that you head. mentioned that because as I was watching him, I think he behaves a lot like Lore, except for the facial expressions. Yeah, I think that uh, when I was reading that, I was noticing, I was thinking the same thing that it's kind of, I think, hard for him to. He's got to be a bad guy, so I think as an actor, he he says, "Okay, bad guy was the way I did Lore. That's the way I do a bad guy. So that's you know how how many shades of a bad guy can." can Brent maybe do, especially when he, for years, he's been working on the character of Data, which is in essence a pretty good guy, you know, a neutral kind of character. Well, Data is a completely good guy. He's kind of right. like the um, the quintessential good guy that you always trust, but um, when right. you so look at the way he plays, uh, Brent plays Lore, which is this sort of calm version of Data with emotions and isn't the nicest guy in the world at all. Uh, and then you've come across this guy, what's his name, um, Morgan Kelly, who's who's inside Data, and um, but it's not really Morgan Kelly from the Essex, is it? It's really um, one of these prisoners who's stuck on the planet. Yes. We don't know what kind of guy he is. He could have been just like Lore. You know, if we could make that up and then just excuse Brent for being just like Lore. Right now, just to let you again know to sync up. Uh, we got Miles coming in on the baby, looking at the baby. And I know what this is. And he just pushed the blanket away. Okay, um, I'm right there. That's uh, Kiko and little Molly, right? Yeah, that's Molly, who has a pretty big role. Um, after You see, just prior to this, she'd been born in Ten Ford. Uh, right, Warf, in the Warf was disaster. there. <laughs> Worf delivered her, yeah. Yeah. And um, which I thought was kind of a neat thing. I like that. Uh, but it's interesting to note that that was also a disaster episode that focused around O'Brien and Troy on the bridge, and now they're in Ten Forward with Worf. But it's the same sort of story. That you know, the Enterprise is stuck, and it's all happening in Ten Forward. It's also interesting to note that the Ten Forward set, should that never have been built, this episode probably would never have happened. And um, at the beginning of the second season of Star Trek The Next Generation, the Ten Forward scene uh, set was actually um, constructed. 
And if you look at it, the reason it's the way it is is because it's the same room used in Star Trek V for the cat uh, sequence with Captain Kirk. They fight in the um, on the planet Paradise, whatever that planet was called, in Paradise City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that table and everything, the same, it's the same same room redressed for Ten Forward. Ah, okay. Yeah, that was about the same time frame, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's also the same room for the president's office in Star Trek VI. I mean, it's so the same room that all they did was hang a curtain in front of the windows, but you can still see them. Yeah, I mean, I always loved the the addition of Ten Forward to to Next Generation. I thought it was a great idea. It, it made the ship seem a little more real. It, it like you said, it opened up the 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 chance to have a lot of this kind of these kind of scenes and a lot of other stuff going on that was outside the bridge. Outside engineering, you know, outside sick bay, you know, the main other classic sets. I mean, this is the kind of um, they did have a rec room and a break kind of room in the original series, but you know, nothing to the level of ten forward. So, and it's basically, you know, it's it's a bar. This is where everyone you get to get those little nice character moments and stuff, and then scenes. Oh yeah, scenes like oh, yeah. This and, and if you watch Star Trek Generations. Um, and you watch the commentary with Ronald Moore and Branham Braga, the two writers for the movie, they talk about the scenes in which Data drinks that drink and says, you know, that he hates it, but he wants more. Yes. And how mm-hmm. they have Ten Forward so incredibly populated in that scene. It's really busy. Right, there are a lot and of people. And they could never afford that many extras when making Star Trek The Next Generation on the budget. So when they had the movie, they could really make Ten Forward the way they wanted to make it. Which is really busy. Yeah, for anyone that's ever, you know, which is probably, you know, several people, uh, you know, that, are, you know, that if you've been in a bar anywhere, I mean, and especially, um, you know, this is a starship with a lot of people on it, like you mentioned, and who knows how, if there are even any other, quote unquote, bars on the ship. But I mean, they're they're usually pretty packed places. <laughs> You know, well, the Enterprise D had a few recreation rooms, like the Arboretum Tenfold. Sure. There were gyms. Uh, there was a room that there was designated for fencing, or had fencing painting on the floor in an episode, and um, you know various stuff like that. But the recreation rooms weren't shown all that much on Star Trek ever. No, I mean, they, well, you know, truthfully, they, they um, what they used was the holodeck. You know. Exactly, and the, or the rec, uh, even the recreation of using the restroom wasn't on Star Trek. They never even refer to using the bathroom until you get to Enterprise. Yeah, about you ever ever really see is something like in the people's quarters. You know, they'll they'll go over to a sink and kind of splash some water on their face, but that's about it. So. All you need to know for I think um, for the Ferengi, uh, the idiot was his name, um, Rom, uh, said, said um, that. They need to use the restroom. I think he referred to it as waste extraction. Yeah, yeah. So now we've got them going down. Um, what are they doing here again? They're, they're, they've got this device. They're drilling a hole through the ceiling of Ten Forward oh, okay, right. to we've fire got... a plasma shock pulse from this thing that they've brought with them. Of course, the them. dreaded plasma shock pulse. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and those... Uh, those, those uh, Jeffries tubes, uh, named for Walter Matt Jeffries, who designed the original Enterprise. I'm trying to recall, and I must have missed it while we were chatting here, but what was the... Did Data or someone set up something? Why, why didn't they just beam them out of 10 forward? There was something that was done, right? 
because O'Brien uh, set some sort of uh, lockout on the transporters and put them into diagnostic mode. Ah, okay, that's uh, right. And because yeah. he's a transporter chief, he's probably put his transporter chief code in there. And because on Star Trek, no one can break anyone's codes. Yeah, exactly. It. They don't have like one master. You know, Picard should have kind of some kind of you know master override code. All you know that would that would take care of all that. But again, that's again a, a convention of. The episode, if it was that easy, you know, the episode. Well, he does actually. Picard does have a command uh, sequence code that should override everyone else is on board the Enterprise. Sure, but uh, if you, uh, but what but I meant, I guess, was just that he it doesn't work. You know, he he's got. Well, it some. doesn't happen in this episode. Just because, I think because the uh, the writers did want it to. Somebody once said, "What does a tricorder do? Whatever Gene Roddenberry needs it to do." Right. Whatever the writers exactly were, whatever they want it to do or have to have it do, so. It's interesting also in this story, it's, it's really well written at one point because they have Riker get a sort of a hidden message from Patrick and, and, and Ten Forward, which is to, uh, to blow them out to space. But I don't think that's right here. I think it's a couple of minutes yet for that. Yeah, and you just like you said earlier about uh, you know Lavar about Jordy being on the bridge. We got Crusher doing a lot on the bridge too in this episode, which is like, what's up with that? You know. Well, Picard called her specially earlier and said, "I want you to make it your top priority to figure out how to um, contain the little things once they come out the people." Right, right, and of course, her being a doctor somehow that's that's something she would be good at. I, I, I don't <laughs> yeah, know. well, one of the other doctors, you know, like a geologist or uh, you know, a, a, you know, something else on the Enterprise. You know, they have so many different scientists on the Enterprise, but she's the only one that can handle it. <laughs> that's why you know one of the episodes that I really enjoyed from from Next Gen that was in the later seasons. Uh, I'm not sure which one, maybe six or seven. You probably know uh, better, but um, the the episode Lower Decks. Yeah, season seven, one of the final episodes. Yeah, yeah. I love that idea just because, you know, finally, you know, seventh seasons, but they finally show, hey, you know what, there's a few other people that actually do things, and you got to see their perspective on, on the, some of the top dog characters as well. I thought it was yeah, a great, a great really idea. Yeah, that was a really good episode. Yes. yes but it I also really makes you feel kind of shitty, doesn't it? Well, kind of, you know, it, it, it's, it, you know, anybody that, you know, I've worked at a lot of companies, and, you know, some big, some small and that, and there's always that, there's a hierarchy, and this is basically, it's kind of military, kind of not military, you know, there, there's, there's got to always be somebody on top, and there's got to always be people that are, you know, supporting the people on top, so, I mean, that's just, just kind of the way things work. I think, yeah, I think uh, uh, what's the actress? The... Is Rosalind Chow? Is that how you say her name? I'm not sure who plays Keiko. Uh, Ro- Rosalind Chow, yeah, I think that's her name. Um, I think she did a great job there. They just show that scene where, where Miles is sort of like, I don't know, was he trying to give her a kiss or something? But uh... Well, I, what I called it in my notes was the obligatory rape slash force the guy on the girl scene in a hostage situation movie. Yeah, she was pretty all... freaking out rather well, I thought, there. Did a pretty good job with it. Well, it's also the music. If you watched it without the music, you might not think she was quite as good. Yeah, Because the music yeah. builds up there as well. Sure, it may, they have that very, like, you know, I don't know how to describe it, but you're right, the music does add a lot to that. One thing that I find really not very convincing in this particular sequence, uh, where we're in 10 forward in this whole episode, is all the chairs have been knocked over. Not one of them is still upright. Now, yeah, I know well, that... What is up with scene- that? I mean, they're they're... they're they just 
decided not to pick him up, have everyone sit on the floor, or, or just, you know... Yeah, it is. Well, it's not, well, I was thinking more like, why are they all... Not everybody fell over a chair. And, you know, like, why, why are the chairs all lying down? I know it gives a sense of chaos to the order that is usually on the Enterprise, but it also gives a sense of, you know, come on, Patrick, tell people to pick it up. <laughs> Well, again, that's that also could be part of just the typical, like you were saying, the hostage situation where you're 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 like get get people down on the ground so you can keep a closer eye on them. If they're sitting in the chair, they might be I don't know doing something behind the back of the chair. Who knows? Yeah. Well, you know those tables with those big lights and ten forward. I always find yeah. those. Think to, I think to myself, I would never want to sit at a table like that. You the, couldn't the, see what that, was going that's on. Blinding you, basically. That's that's glowing <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, look, I can see everything that's floating in my drink now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it, it, it. They are a little. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it makes it for good lighting and good effects in, in filming the episode, but they don't really make a whole lot of sense. Oh, here's the most violent scene between Data and Picard ever. He's um, he's choking him. Oh, uh, there! You might be a little ahead of me here. Where I'm still with Roe and and Jordy. Now they just blasted him. Now, now Miles and and the two spears just popped out of uh, out of Miles and Troy. Data, yeah. Here we go. Yep. Yeah. Now he's choking Picard. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, he's putting him on like a uh, like a foot off the ground. Yeah. As you say, Captain. Yeah, he's like, you gotta quit now. Are you gonna kill me? Yeah, they just, yep, they're just um, the little, the little glowy, uh, you know, fireflies just went back into uh, Troy and uh, O'Brien. <laughs> and her hair's now a mess. The wig is now a mess, which always gives her the, that sort of distressed look. Yeah. yeah. And Picard is going a shade of deep red. <laughs> Are you ready to cooperate? Yeah, he's getting pretty pink there. <laughs> I always think when these guys get to do something like this, where they're way way out of character, that they probably just just had a ball doing this kind of an episode. Oh yeah, wouldn't it be great to do a scene like this? Yeah, I get to choke Patrick Stewart. You know how much fun can that be? It's like <laughs> we all want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you big British pompous whatever you know here. Take that. Hey, my parents are English. <laughs> Well, I mean, in this particular sequence of episode, you know, this, uh, uh -huh. I, I've heard from different times at different conventions, you know, that they, they, they did a lot of things to sort of prey on Patrick and, and Brent, especially, you know, has got the classic, very good impression that he can do a Patrick Stewart, you know, he's, I've heard him several times pull out the little British accent and do his sort of, his, his, uh, Patrick Stewart, you know, I'm Patrick Stewart, I can't do it, but, uh. No, yes. I've heard Star him do that. Of Star Trek, the next generation. Yes, engage yes. number one, you know. And, I mean, he does that. All he's got to do is do that little bit at a convention, and he gets the whole crowd clapping and roaring. Oh, well, Brent is, 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 is probably the second best actor on Star Trek after Patrick, and Avery Brooks was really good as well. They're lying. On the contrary, we've had a difficult time with the transporter since we arrived here. That's why we had to send down the shuttle. You'd all have been aware of that fact. See, they've got them. Remember when Data just separated them before, and he says, "You sit over there. You sit over there." Yes. Uh, now they're together again, and Data's not paid off with them. I, you'd think he'd go over there and give him a blue face or something. 
yeah. with the way he's been, you know, the way the guy who's inhabiting Data is. He's a nasty, nasty man. Yeah, definitely. Well, this is all a con job. You can see it coming, you know. They're... We must not be separated. Oh, the con job of uh, Picard saying, I could give you a transporter room. Yes, yes. Thing is, why don't they just transport them into space if they get a transporter room? Yeah, again, uh, you know, another one of those situations of this is this is the way the episode is written. You know, you're a writer. I, I've tried to write. You know, I've a long time ago we created our own little Star Trek episodes and wrote some things. And it's one of the things I found is when you're doing science fiction and especially something like Star Trek, it's it, it's a very difficult and tricky situation to create conflict to create scenes that you can't figure out a way out of you know what i mean because well, it's the, I, as because a matter of fact future. i'm actually writing a star trek episode as we uh, well not right now but uh, in the process of it at the right. moment and um i i'm constantly thinking you know that's been done before or oh no you know i could just do this and i know because i know about the technical details that are involved a lot of the writers didn't a lot of the technical details that run the enterprise Right, it's like you crash somebody and... on a planet, and then it's like, okay, you got to figure out a reason why can't they just beam them off the planet, you know? And then you got to well, think of a uh, reason. EM radiation in the upper ionosphere, and right? They can't get and through. then why can't they just send a shuttlecraft <laughs> down? Well, there's this other thing going on, and you know, the shuttles well, a, are all the like planetary you know, defense off. grid left there by an old civilization, and right. you just can't get past it. You're constantly <laughs> having to basically answer, you know. Well, well, why can't they just do this? Well, why can't they just do this? So. Well, yeah, but that that's that's one of the reasons. Um, I'm probably going to be releasing this Star Trek story um online for people to just sort of read and imagine because um it's a TNG episode and obviously that will never be made. That's why something about uh I don't know the the original series uh, that has always kind of appealed to me is 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 the. They didn't really get into those kinds of episodes very often. They were a lot more, um, they met some alien situation or race, and they had to deal with it in a certain way. You know, a lot of those technical things that happened as Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and so forth went on. They created themselves kind of, a, uh, as time would go on, more of a, a limited, limiting themselves to what they could and couldn't do. You know, almost every episode, it's like you just said. Oh, we got to create something of why they can't do this and why they can't do that. And well, what, what you should know is Picard and here. the rest Let's... of them were walking through the hallway there. Yeah. That was the same hallway that they walked through to get to 10 forward, but it was dressed to look slightly different. And that panel on the wall, which Data smashed, whether that was shot before or after this, was somehow repaired. Oh, yeah, well, that's where the magic, uh, you know, nanobots on the Enterprise pop in and they fix things as they're broken, you know. I didn't even know they had those. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a joke. That was that was pretty well. Well, didn't that was that happened with uh, Wesley? Did that one time? I think. Yeah, that nanobots. was the first episode that Michael Piller wrote for Star Trek. Yeah, the little nanobots loose on the Enterprise yeah. that Wesley had been growing in like a petri dish in in, in some lab. And they all be, they became like um, sentient. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But anyway, I was what all I was trying to say earlier was that you know just. The more you sort of, uh, I, I, I think the Scotty kind of said it best, and like I think it was Star Trek Three. You know, the more the more you you know you complicate the, the plumbing. Yeah, uh, you, the, exactly. The easier it is to, to mess it up when he was referring to uh, the Excelsior. 
So, you know, Star Trek in general, as time went on, got so, you know, heavy. The, the whole techno babble situation of uh, you'd have to go through this sort of routine. Okay, you could almost come up with a checklist. Okay, let's see. This episode, they, they, the transporters don't work because of this, and the shuttles don't work because of this, and the phasers don't work because of this. It, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, it's, you know, sometimes it, it's, it's a problem and sometimes it's not, but, you know. One thing I would like to make a, a little note here about is they've just transported on board some, um, some of those things that are inside their bodies. Yeah, you're about five, five or ten seconds ahead of me now. All right. Okay, let me just uh, yeah, back us up here. Yeah, uh, let's see. The little wind is going. They just transported them. Troy's talking. Okay, yeah. Yeah, the wind is what I was about to mention. It doesn't make any sense at all because they put a, they put a force field around them, so there should be nothing escaping the chamber of the sure, transporter, sure. yet somehow it's blowing in the wind, Yeah. which might refer to earlier in the episode on the planet that they're in a storm and it was windy. Yeah, there you could buy it, but they're 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 protected around this field at this point. Like you said, it's it's on the planet. Yeah, it made sense. Well, Here. also look around now. The the wind is gone. That's correct. Yeah, it's an effect. The wind is only there when we're shot from the establishing shot from the first bit in the sequence. And why and is your voice look, echoing now so much? Troy's voice is it just because of uh, they they seem to. There seems to be differences in the way they talk when they're inhabiting these bodies in this episode. Sometimes they just talk almost normally, and then other times they have a voice that sounds like they're... Um, well, remember, they're in a room that's about 50 feet wide, and sure, there's nothing sure. in it, so it's echoey. I thought it was there's more, also, than, more than just, that. They've uh, just flooded the, um, the room with that... Um, the, the black uh, lights? <laughs> the black light, and... Um, I don't really know what the what it all is. I don't think that's explained too well. But I think it's got something to do with the fact that the um, that they're they're preventing the uh, creatures from from you know doing whatever they were going to do. Yeah, yeah. This is basically the standoff situation, you know, where Picard's saying he'll do this. Or you know, I'd rather everyone die, type of thing, than everyone. I'd rather die. kill us in this room. I'd rather die than let you do this. I can't imagine ever being in a position to say that unless it's about my family. You know. <laughs> sure. Yeah. They're very, very brave on Star Trek. You know, I'd really rather die than letting this happen. I liked the little bit of continuity there, where Picard had to call the bridge. He used Troy's communicator to do it. Yes, because he doesn't have his, right? They took all yeah. those, yeah. Usually you just bark out to the air and somehow the Enterprise would know that he was calling Right, the computer the, uh, would the pick bridge. it up or whatever, right? Yeah. So now everything's okay. We're going to get to ride off into the sunset. Yeah, now what did they... They basically just sent them back to the planet, right? At this point. Yeah, they just put them back where they were. <laughs> and they don't really... I mean, I guess basically they say, well, we're not going to, you know, quarantine this place. Yeah, I'd put like a warning beacon in orbit. If you beam down here, these people are yeah, evil, you know, whatever. don't come down here. This is a bad place, so... Yeah, they did that once in an episode in, an earlier. They sh- they put like a beacon around the starship. Remember that? The yeah, uh, I do. I land, remember that land one. tree. Right, right. They were basically basically as you saw the Enterprise leaving, it was like it left this little blinky thing. It's like okay, stay away from here. Yeah, and they also blew it to pieces by the end of the episode. They came back and blew up the ship. Right, right. 
now we've got to have to have the reunion in sick bay here of uh keiko and molly and and miles i was happy that they did finally on on next gen you know they talked about it from the very beginning of being a you know this ship and the in the starships in this era would allow families in that and, and, but you know they say that but no one really has one of the main characters and it, it kind of like well that seems kind of silly you know you're, you're, well, it you're, you're making such a point would inconvenient for the main characters to either be married or have a have well, a well uh, would it would it or wouldn't be i mean they, they started with deep space nine and now we're into the uh the end credit titles um but we should I mention some of these people um yeah uh, in a few seconds um you're gonna see a few of the people who I've uh, interviewed on my website over the years. Um, we've got Rick Stern back there, Dan Curry, uh, both uh, masters at what they do, uh, Dennis Madelone, the stunt coordinator for Star Trek TNG, DS9, Voyager, and um, Eric Stilwell, the uh, production associate, mm-hmm. all mentioned here in the uh, final credits. There's Dennis Madelone, Eric Stilwell, and Image G, as I mentioned at the earlier part in the episode. Yeah, I'm trying to recall. Did Im- Image G do their effects from the very beginning, or did they change at some point? Well, it, the um, throughout the run, it was Image G and um, the uh, studio Industrial Light and Magic. Sure. Uh, but other than that, they... You see, halfway through Star Trek The Next Generation, they started using rudimentary computer special effects. Like, uh, when that sort of um, Ankylosaurus tail thing attached itself to the um, outside of the Enterprise and sucked power from them when Leah Brahms was on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, That was a computer-generated prop uh, that they actually stuck on the model. Okay, all right. So, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the computer-generated stuff started to take over. By the end of TNG, it was all computer. Yeah, they, you know, they the started to slowly, ships. you know, it was it was in the, uh, you know, it was on from, uh, like, 1987 to 94, and, uh, you know, computer and graphic technology that way was uh, was not nearly what it is these days. I mean, gosh, you could, you can do more, I think, on a personal computer now than you could do at the beginning uh, at a professional level on Next Generation, so... You know, there's a lot of people out there creating their own little mini films and movies with their own home equipment. So it's uh, it, it's pretty amazing how much it's changed in such a short period of time. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see over the next you know ten twenty years in TV and film how much that grows and continues to change. Uh, it's uh, it's kind Absolutely. of absolutely. Uh, well, when Star Trek: The Next Generation started, they were writing the scripts on typewriters and DOS-based word processors. Right. Yeah, uh, typewriters. They, they, yeah. They didn't even. They didn't even have, um, you know, Microsoft Word or, uh, well, basically what I used to write and industry standard is Final Draft to write screenplays, and um, you know that didn't exist. You had to space it all yourself, and if there was a mistake, you had to either rewrite the page or you know use um, whiteout or whatever. And right, everything a lot of manual, a lot of manual, all manual stuff. On the original and... series, all the um, scripts for the main characters, I think it was Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, just the ones that kept on getting revised all the time, yes. those ones were shot, uh, were written on carbon paper. So they would be um, have multiple ones of each one so that they didn't have to keep on making them. 
and printing them out. Oh yeah, I mean here this will date me too, but I, I the same thing. I mean back when I was growing up and we'd create our own little Star Trek episodes and scripts. I did them in a typewriter along with you know two or three carbons and extra paper in the typewriter all at the same time. You know typing them out, so I would have multiple copies. I mean even just something as simple as a copy machine or getting a Xerox made was 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 not really readily available. So uh, yeah, it's it, it's amazing how much things have uh, have changed. So anyway, that's uh. That's power play. It was fun to go through. I uh, I enjoyed it a lot. The uh, you know I don't know if we got into the really nitty gritty of the episode that much about the you know the plot of it. I, you know, pretty straightforward. I think um, you know these aliens take over the the crew members and and then they have to solve the situation. But and you know as we were going through it, it was uh, interesting you know to notice and like we were talking about of how much they have to just say you know okay why can't you do this why can you do that and. You know, you have to get yeah, rid of all the technology. Yeah. yeah, it was uh, it was a good episode to, to take, and we'll have to do this uh, do this once more. Was there any other final comments you have about Power Play, about that episode in particular? You wanted to sometimes when we yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, after that episode, they decided that the main cast of characters were no longer going to be doing their own stunts ah. because because Marina Sirtis um, desi- uh, broke her. Uh, tailbone and because it was you know they developed some minor injuries from throwing themselves onto the floor which really hurts after you've done it six times for four different camera angles sure sure yeah i it's, it's um I, I was surprised actually when you watch that scene you know where they get tossed back and she when she like you said she broke her tailbone that they would have even you know not thought about that a little bit you know pad the back of her her uniform or something i mean maybe they well, did yeah I, I i i've tried you know various stunts and the stuff that i've shot and been actually um an actor in the yeah. various little tiny films and um after a couple of times of throwing yourself even on the carpet it starts to um really hurt and if you fall straight backwards the way they do in that scene yeah, that's something I never did. I just would not throw myself backwards because you just don't know how you're going to land. Right, unless and, you're landing and it, on a pillow. Yeah, I mean, you could you could really hurt yourself, uh, hurt yourself pretty badly, and you could do something to yourself that that you know you might have to live with for the rest of your life. You know, it's just uh, well, yeah. And Jonathan Frakes never does his own stunts. Just watch when he has to punch someone; they take it right back, and it's never him. It's not even him punching or uh, punching the stunt guy. Yeah, well, you, you're you're probably aware. Maybe this is I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but you've probably heard the whole story about to why he's got that little head cock that he always does, where he's got his head turned. You know, you notice it throughout Next Generation, uh, where you know what I'm talking about. How how how? Yeah, uh, he Jonathan... mentioned that at the only convention I ever went to back in the early '90s. He kind of got a question about that from the audience, and he goes, "Well, it's just because the Enterprise is kind of leaning towards the where the Enterprise <laughs> is going, or something." It's because of the shift. That, you know, we're going at warp speed, so I'm like, "Yeah." Well, did you did he did he he probably made a little joke, but did he tell you the story that I've heard that I think I even heard him say the real the real story of that? Basically, no, no. the. Um, the story behind why he's always got his head turned to one side is in his early, early days, you know, as a struggling actor type situation, he was like a bellhop kind of guy. He would he would tote up people's luggage and things uh, at a hotel that he worked at. And the, the story that I've heard is that a lot of times if it was, a, you know, not a really big bag. He would or if people had multiple bags, he would toss one bag up on one of his shoulders and typically what you would do in that situation is you throw a bag up on your shoulder and you tip your head to one way, you know, one side. 
And I guess the sort of stress and strain of that over the you know however long he did this, basically either it's it's more of a habit or it actually kind of you know torqued his neck a little bit. But since his days of of toting bags on his shoulder, he has this sort of perpetual like he cocks his head to one side a lot, and that's the story basically the way I've heard. Um, that situation, I thought it was. Wow, kind of, I've never heard that before. That's interesting. Never yeah, well, heard that at all. It kind of, it kind of makes sense. He's a, he's a pretty big guy, and you know, you know, a lot of these guys are either you know they're waiters or you know he worked in a hotel. A lot of them take these little odd jobs to to make ends meet when they're first starting out, and that was what he did, and and it caused him, I guess. Uh, I think he said it basically caused some actual physical damage. You know that it was just he doesn't just do it out of like an old habit. It's it's actually it, it hurts him to keep his neck kind of straight on and i, I well, noticed, have to ask him about that when i do the interview with him which is yeah ask short. him about his little neck thing because I, I i saw him he was at a the comic con here a few weeks ago in, in in michigan and i noticed even over next gen over the years and you know uh the movies and future interviews i think it slowly has faded more than it was at the early days of next generation it's not nearly as pronounced but i mean there are times on next gen where he's just got this head turned over like at 45 degrees and you're like what's that about <laughs> you know you're you look at it and you know it, it, it but it's it, you know it, it got to be you just got to be used to you know like anybody has a particular set of mannerisms you got to be uh used to it a little bit and, and well yeah if you're ever doing an impression of uh of commander Riker, that's the what you do that's how that's how you do it right yeah. or you tug down your shirt if you're doing patrick you know and and make it so and all so uh well, I'm going to at least stop the recording, uh, Sebastian. It was a, it was great to go through this episode with you. We'll have to pick another one and do it sometime in the near future, definitely. I had yeah, a, sound, had sounds a like time. a great idea. I enjoyed it as well. Okay, hang on uh, the line. I'll be right back. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that. I really want to thank Sebastian Pruth uh, for taking the time out uh, today to do this duo commentary on the episode Power Play. It was really good fun to talk to him. Uh, really great guy and has a lot of good knowledge about Star Trek and brings uh, some interesting things to uh, to the commentary that uh, I do on these things. So we're going to definitely do another episode in the near future. Again, uh, thanks a lot, Sebastian. Really appreciate your help. Next week's show, we'll be back with a uh, more of a uh, typical Treks in sci-fi type of uh, episode. Don't forget to get those contest entries in, and I will be talking to everyone next week. Take care until then. Bye-bye. This has been a Rick Dosty podcast production. You said don't talk fast, and that's how you show excitement. All right, talk a little faster. Okay. This has been a Rick Dosty podcast production. This podcast, copyright 2007, all rights reserved.